please remain standing for the reading of God's word. It'll be very short. Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. That's it. Let's pray. Father, um, just, yeah, what Lynn said, this, this is heavy. Um, help us to receive your word with humility. I just know that we, we just are resistant in and of ourselves. And so we pray for your spirit to help us to see uh, the life that comes through receiving your word as hard as that may be. Help us to know that you are so quick to forgive, so quick to comfort. And uh, there is grace for all of us. We have all fallen short. We have all committed this sin. And uh, we pray for restraint. By your grace, through your spirit, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You shall not murder. That is both the command and the application. Let's go home. <laughs> Shortest sermon ever. Um, yeah, this, this, this really is... Yeah, yeah this, is, this is massive. My going into this text, it's, it's like following endless rabbit trails. I mean, this, when you start digging into the implication of what this means, I mean, it's huge. And uh, this is everywhere. I mean, hopefully you'll get a glimpse of that in this text here. And I, I really, I mean, there's so much that can be said about this, and I just don't have time to say it all. So hopefully we scratch the surface of something that is actually true about this commandment, and um, we would leave here with, with a greater understanding, and, and my hope is, is that truly um, we would be both convicted and comforted by Jesus. I mean, this is, this is intense. So um, where do you even start? Wow. Um, let's just start here, okay? Because at the, very, at the very heart of this commandment is life. Okay, that's what I, I want you to see that. I want you to believe that. I want us to have a great value for life because under, underneath this commandment is a God who is a God of life. Okay, that's where I want to start. So life is precious. Thomas Watson, a Puritan, said this. He said, in the sixth commandment, we honor him, God, as the life Lord of life, the one who gave his life in order that we might live. That's at the heart of this commandment, is life. So why then does it say do not murder? Well, let's just kind of back up a little bit. I like to do this. I like to start where the Bible starts because it'll, it'll give us a framework for understanding the importance and the significance of this commandment, right? Let's, let's go back all the way to the beginning. So where, where Thomas Watson actually starts, he says, we honor him as life, right? We believe that God is life, right? The triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, out of the abundant love and life that they had together in eternity, they created. And when they created, it was life, 
right? He created the plants and the trees and the birds and the animals. And when he created us, it says that we were created in his image. And that's very important. That is so important. That is so foundational to understanding this commandment in particular. And in verse uh, 1, or I'm sorry, chapter 1 of Genesis, um, well, I'm sorry, verse 2 in Genesis, it says this in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature from life for life to life. It's all about life. We know that um, when God created us, the first command he gave us was what? Be fruitful and multiply life, right? Multiply life. In verse 15 of Genesis 2, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. This is a garden filled with living plants, right? To expand Eden's borders, right? So there would be more life. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's a warning. Are you going to choose life, or are you going to choose death? I mean, that, that's fundamentally still applicable to us every day of every moment. Are we going to use the breath of life that God gave us to choose life, or to choose death. And if you're a Christian, you know the story, right? In Genesis 3, we chose death. We took of that tree of death and ate. We exchanged life for death. This is, this is the basic understanding of, of why things in our world have gone astray, right? We are now given over to death. We're reminded of it every day. Right? Thought, word, deed. We see it played out in various forms. Um, it's not hard to argue that there's something wrong with the world. So we traded life for death. God is the source of life. We rejected him. Now, why would we do that, though? What would be our motivation for exchanging life for death? Well, in Genesis 3, we read this. Now, the serpent, who is often referred to as Satan, it's certainly satanic. This serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman that God formed in his own image and likeness, he says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die." But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This, that temptation, right, to be like God, that seemed better than life. We just take God out of the picture. We can be like him. We will have life. And that inevitably led to death. And we, we know. We know what death is. We experience it, right? I don't, I don't necessarily have to make an argument for that. You know that. You see that. You see that every day. When you think of this commandment, right, do not murder, 
This is given to Moses. And, and if you know anything about his story, you know that he's a murderer, right? When he was in Egypt, he saw injustice. He took matters into his own hands and he killed a man. And he fled Egypt. So there's grace for murderers. And this is, I want, we have to just know that, that there's grace for the murderer, right? God doesn't, God doesn't love murder, but he loves murderers. And I think by the end of this, hopefully, you'll see that you're no better than Moses. You're no better than him, and neither am I. So, at the very root of this command, right, choosing death, we believe that there was something better, something that is better. This is idolatry. Anytime we think that there's something better than someone, namely God, or someone who was made in his image, which is us, when we, when we, have, when we make that value distinction in our hearts, that something is going to be better than someone, that is idolatry. This is at the heart of murder. This is what it means to murder, is to find something more valuable than someone. Okay? This is the only way that we can get to murder. We, we, we have got to minimize God in order that we can maximize something else. That's what we do. Okay? So murder actually begins by attempting to remove God out of the picture, which is why when he shows up in flesh and blood, what do we do? We nail him to a cross. He's got to go. This is what we've done. This is what our first parents did spiritually in their hearts. Okay? Now, idolatry. Valuing something more than someone. Okay, this has, like I said, there's, we can go so many places, okay? There's, there's more that can be said about this. But why, why do we think some things are more valuable than people? Okay? There's a, there's a few um, heart motivations for these things, and we see these manifested, right? Greed, okay? I'm just going to list five, okay? Greed, jealousy, envy, vindication, and fear, okay? Greed. We see this, right? We see this, we see this with Jacob, right? Jacob and Esau, right? Jacob wanted Esau's blessing, he wanted his birthright. He wanted him to take somebody's birthright or his inheritance is to act as though that person doesn't exist. Get out of the picture so I can receive the blessing. That's greed, okay? In James 4, James writes about this, and he says this. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. Greed. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And notice what he says. You do not have because you don't ask. What's he talking about? He's talking about prayer. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a little bit. You don't ask. We don't ask God. We take matters into our own hands. So that's greed, jealousy. We see this played out, right? Right after Adam and Eve choose death over life, 
their children, Cain and Abel. Abel offers a, a right sacrifice to God, and Cain says, I don't like that. I don't like that God was more pleased with you than he was with me. That's jealousy. And then, we, then Cain rises up and what? Strikes him down. And God says, his blood cries out to me. Cries out to me. It's jealousy. We, we know later on in the book of Genesis, right, Joseph is bragging about how loved he was. And uh, his brothers rose up and said, hey, let's go throw him in that pit. Take him out of the picture. Maybe we'll get more love from our father. Jealousy. They left him for dead, but then they figured they would make a buck. <laughs> so they sold him into slavery instead. And, and, and some of these things I'm going I'm to tie in later, okay, because uh, there is good news here. Okay, so that's jealousy. We, we recognize jealousy, envy. Um, there's many examples of this. I'm just going to talk about one, and I'll refer to this a little bit later. Um, we read this in Matthew. Yes, Matthew 27. Pilate says this in, uh, in, in verse 24, right? Pilate, he, he doesn't know what to do with Jesus. His wife is telling him, hey, I'm getting all these bad dreams. Like, please don't kill this man because I'm being haunted and a riot's about to start, and so he says, okay, well, I don't know what to do here. But he's thinking about the situation. It says, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, this is uh, Matthew 27, 24, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. But notice what happens before that. Uh, Pilate, Pilate is trying to think about the situation, and he's like, why, why would I want to kill this man? What is going on here? What is the motivation here? It says in verse 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Envy. These, these religious rulers were envious of the praise that Jesus was getting. And, more, and they were losing followers. So when they perceived that, they said, he's got to go. This is envy. Vindication. I, ref I referenced this um, a little while ago. Uh, one example of that is Moses, right? As a Jew who was raised in Egyptian culture, he saw another fellow Jew being treated poorly. And out of that sense of injustice... He took matters into his own hands and he rose up and he struck that man and he killed him. He became the judge and decided that that man's life was not valuable. He made that decision. Vindication. Lastly, fear. Um, probably the most notable story in all of Scripture, how fear leads us to murder, actual murder, is the famous story of, of David and Bathsheba, right? David sleeps with Bathsheba. He doesn't want Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to find out. So what does he do? He sends him to the front lines and tells the, other, the army to retreat so that he's left vulnerable, and he's killed. And Scripture refers to that as murder. He was murdered out of fear. So we see this, okay? Now, 
one of the things that, that we, we have, okay, all the commandments are all deeply connected. It's, it's hard to really isolate one of the commandments from the rest because they're, they're all so closely mingled. But I do think it's worth noting that this commandment, commandment six, is so tied to the second commandment, right? The second commandment is essentially, don't make images. Do not make images. And when I referred to earlier about the significance, right, of being made in the image of God, this is at the foundation of it. We don't make images because we are the images. When we make images, we're making images of images. We're we're the image. We are to image God. And this is why, at at the very heart of this commandment, this is all about life. This is all about ascribing value to human beings because of who we are. Now, some people will argue that the reason why we bear the image of God is because of our intellect or because of our sense of morality or on and on and on, our sophistication. And that's not actually true. The reason why we have value is because God gave us value, simply put. Because if you actually go down that road and you say that our image bearing is contingent on some sort of attribute, what happens when you lose your intellect? You're not not an image bearer, you're disposable. What happens if I can't see you? What happens if you're not fully developed? What happens when you lose your strength at the end of your life? Are you less of an image bearer? No. You're always an image bearer. You have value because you're made in God's image. This is at the very heart of why God says, don't murder. Do not blot out my image bearers because they bear my image. Guys, this is... uh, The way that I, the way that I thought about this is basically murder is essentially minimization. It's just minimization. It's making somebody lesser, making them or rendering them invaluable. That's what murder is. And we do that. It's not... That's why I'm saying it's not just simply taking another person's life. And by the way, I, I just will mention these, okay? Under this category of murder, we're not talking about self-defense. We're not talking about capital punishment. We're not talking about, um, what's the third biggie? Capital punishment. What's that? Yeah, just war, okay? It's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about minimizing image bearers. Okay, so this is what Jesus says in Matthew 5. He says, you have heard it. He's commenting on this commandment. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment, anger, towards another image bearer is the same as murder. Jesus is equating murder, hatred against another person as murder. Jesus said that. And he says, whoever insults his brother 
will be liable to the council to insult another person. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. Minimization. Minimization. Yeah. Instead of dying to self, we expect others to die for us. Selfishness is what is, this is what this is, right? We expect others to die for us in order that we may live, which is not actually life. It's not actually life, right? I, I, I don't want to talk too much about this, okay? But I, I really, I mean, I looked it up. The number one cause of death worldwide last year is abortion. Abortion. Number one cause of death. That's astounding. I mean, at its very heart, what you're basically saying is, you die so that I may live. And live means freedom. That's not freedom. That's not freedom. When we think of murder, though, and this is, killing another man is pretty obvious, right? Taking another person's life. But what's not obvious is the way that murder is literally saturated everywhere. It's in your home. It's in this church. It's in your workplace. It's in the world. It's everywhere, okay? And I think to really kind of summarize this, it manifests in basically two forms, This is how it's manifested. When we minimize people, it's either seen as abuse or it's manifested as neglect, okay? Here's what I mean by abuse. Yes, physical abuse. Physical abuse to strike another out of hatred for them is murder. This abuse can be verbal. That's what Jesus is talking about call someone a fool, to insult him, to be angry and to use choice words out of hatred is murder. This can be spiritual, and this is what I believe Jesus is indicting the Pharisees for. He says, you're adding all these laws, and these people, they they can't, this is crushing them. That's murder. We do that in the church. Legalism is murder. It's murder. It's expecting something of another person that, first of all, you're not even living out yourself. But number two, it's it's telling somebody else, my law is better than God's law. You need to obey it. Legalism is spiritual murder. It is. Neglect. Neglect. When we cut people off emotionally, right? I remember learning about a study they did. I, I can't remember when it was. I have no reference point. I, but this is, a known, this is a well-known study. They took 20 or so babies, and they said, okay, what would happen if all we did was meet their physical needs? We won't talk to them. We won't touch them. We won't comfort them hold them, what will happen to them? They all died. They all died. 
Now think of, now, what would that look like in your home? To neglect your kids, your wife, your husband, to just cut them off. What do you think is going to happen to them? There's a form of death. It's a slow death, but it is death. It's neglect, emotional neglect. We cut people off relationally. We cut people off from basic needs. This is what God is indicting Israel for, really at the end of its life. If you read the book of Amos, it talks about the injustice that, is, that, that Israel, that they're accused of for neglecting the poor. This is what James talks about in his book. Cut people off. Avoiding people is a form of murder. We do this with missions. Guys, we've, we've been given good news, and we don't share that good news with other people. We have life, and we know that there's people in our life that are living in death, and we're not giving them life. That's a form of murder. Just simply disregarding people is murder. I'm guilty, by the way. I am so guilty of these things. Do not hear me saying, you guys, it's us, us. We do this, we, as a church that have received life, we do this. Every ism is murder. I don't want to say racism. I, this is my little soapbox for the sermon. I hate that term. It's not biblical. Please stop saying racism. There's one race, one human race. And to, to classify others as other is murder. Ethnocentrism is murder. Sexism is murder. On and on. Every ism is murder. All of it. To minimize people is murder. Now here's the thing. Okay, we, we have to get this. We have got to get this, okay? God loves murderers. He loves murderers. He hates murder. He loves murderers. That is to say he loves us. He loves humanity, okay? We're in Exodus 20. God is unfolding his plan of redemption. And I've already mentioned some of these people, but just think about this. Just, just think about this for a sec, okay? Jesus Christ, the Savior of all of us murderers, came through a genealogy of murderers. <laughs> That's where he came from. He chose to come through a genealogy. All these guys, right? Adam, Abel. Well, not really Abel. He was dead, but he was one of Adam's sons. Jacob, Joseph, who is connected to the twelve Moses, David, I mean, those guys are actually in his genealogy. This is, this is where Jesus came. He loves murderers, okay? And if, if that doesn't sit well with you, okay, I know that could be a little bit cringy. That's what Hannah told me <laughs> on the way over. She's like, oh, that's like really cringy, okay? It is a little cringy, but... I'm going to read this passage, okay? I'm going to be reading a lot of scripture 
Let's just listen to it. Just listen. This is, we have to get this, okay? Matthew 27. I, I alluded to this earlier. God loves the murderer. Listen to this narrative. I mean, let the absurdity of this narrative fall on you. Because this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Matthew 27, verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Historians know that he, this man was a murderer. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is the Christ? Pilate, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. She's not talking about Barabbas. For I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. <laughs> yeah, let's get Barabbas. Let's just release him on the public. That's a great idea. And destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they all said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with this Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. No, you're not. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, I mean, just this is so haunting. His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus literally stood in the place of a murderer. A murderer. Barabbas would have been crucified. Not Jesus. Jesus literally took the place of a murderer. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us. Us. The murderers. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus dies for murderers, as though he was a murderer, so that we could be set free. Who are we in this narrative? We're Barabbas. That's the church. The church is like Barabbas. This is the gospel of Barabbas. We are released, set free. Now, was Barabbas changed? Probably not. We don't know. Who knows? Maybe somebody that's a, maybe you've done research. What happened to Barabbas? We will know. I don't know. But this is, this is the absurdity of the gospel. We are like Barabbas in this story. The murderers who deserve death and yet were given freedom. Now, well, yeah, let me read this first, because this, this is more applicable to, to that story in particular. This is Galatians 5. With this story in mind, 
Galatians 5, verse 13, it says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. You were set free, just like Barabbas. You're free to go. Why? Because that man stood in your place. Only, only, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love image bearers as image bearers, as a demonstration of your love for God. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not all consumed by one another. We use our freedom for selfish gain. Paul says, do the opposite. Deny yourself that you may receive life. Jesus suffered in our place. This is the gospel, right? This is, this is the heart of the gospel, is that he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. Why? To cleanse us. To cleanse us. And it is a true cleansing. It's a true cleansing. Paul says in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not treated as murderers. We are totally, wholly forgiven when we go to him for forgiveness. And Peter says this. He says, since, this is 1 Peter 4.1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, in your place, he says, arm yourself with this same way of thinking. This is, this is what it means to be a Christian, okay? We arm ourselves with this sort of thinking. We die so that others can live. Okay, and I'll, and I'll end with a, with a very strong passage just to, to make that point inexplicably clear. But before we, because even that can sound like, well, I just have to arm myself. Like, no, okay? We arm ourselves out of response of joy for what Christ has done on our behalf. We couldn't do it. He did it for us. Okay, so everything that I'm saying, okay, is to help foster worshipful response to what Christ has done because even, even this is what we do. We take it and we say, well, I just have to arm myself. Like, yeah, good luck with all that. Like, you can't do that in your own strength. The Holy Spirit will arm us because we cannot do it. We can't. We will be given over to the flesh if the Spirit doesn't intercede for us and give us that strength and that ability. Okay? What does it look like to give somebody life, okay? I'm gonna give a pretty, well, this is Jesus. Jesus gives a pretty good, um, clear example, okay, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, okay? This is basically the framework, okay? And when you hear this parable, okay, you're the, you're the guy that, that's dying on the side of the road, okay? This is you, okay? This is Barabbas, this is us, okay? Listen to what Jesus is responding to. He's responding to a lawyer, and this lawyer is interested in life. He says, in Luke 10, verse 25, he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want life. What do I need to do? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and, all, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He's like, yeah, that's exactly right. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this, 
and you will live. Do this and you will live. Do it. Don't just have the right answer. Do it. But he, right, like us, desiring to justify himself, ourselves, says, okay, Jesus, well, then who's my neighbor? Who is he? So I could do this. And Jesus replied, he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Priest had an obligation to take care of people in distress, by the way. He said, not my problem today. We do that. We do that. He says, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, did the same thing, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. Why, now, why would this person have compassion? He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. And Jesus says, Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say it was a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans had a murderous relationship, to say the very least. And Jesus says, You go and do likewise. See, if... This is how we've been treated in Christ. The call to go make disciples is to go and do likewise. This is, this is the essential posture as Christians that we are to have. This is not extra Christianity. This is Christianity. Now, to that extent, maybe, probably not. It's probably going to look a lot more subtle, right? It's probably going to be being mindful of people and paying attention to them and treating them with respect and value and dignity. All the things I fail to do. I want to go back to that, that James passage for a minute, and I just want to reemphasize. In verse 2 of James 4, he says, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You don't have something, so you murder someone. And his response to that is so simple yet so profound. He says, You do not have because you do not ask. I mean, just think about that for a sec. If you're not praying, you are susceptible to murder. It's plain and simple. If you're not asking God, if you're not cultivating dependence on Him, your, your flesh is being given over to a murderous spirit. That's what James is saying. Because you're going to view the world as being in your way, frustrating your plans. they got to go. That person you can't trust, you're gossiping, you're slandering, you're jealous, you're envious. And he's basically saying the reason why you have a murderous spirit is because you're not actually praying to the God of life who wants to give you life, who wants to comfort you. So in response to what Jesus has done for us, right, we arm ourselves with this way of thinking. We live like Samaritans, we pray. 
Galatians 5, which I read, we use our freedom to serve, to put others before ourselves. And this is where we are going to land. Now, this, in my mind, this, this right here gets at the essence of Christianity. See, we think that if we lose, or if we, if, um, if, if we somehow have to give, if we lose a part of ourselves, that we'll die. But it's actually the opposite. When we, when we lose, we gain. This is why Jesus praised John the Baptist. He says, okay, he has come. I must decrease. He must increase. This, this is the essence of Christianity. Why, though? It's because this is what Jesus did for us. He died so that we can live. That's it. And we praise him for that. And we live in response to that. This is what Paul is saying. I'm going to end here and we're going to pray. This is 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse 7 uh, through verse 5 of chapter 5. It's a lot, but just listen. Just listen to this, okay? We die so that others can live. And when we do that, we experience life and joy and hope. Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us, not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Guys, that is joy to experience. That is actual joy that we are forsaking when we don't live this way. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. We die, they live. This is the gospel. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we don't lose heart. All those reasons, the affliction, those are all reasons why we murder people, right? We feel that way. We feel like we're losing, but he's saying you're actually gaining. You're actually gaining. He says, but don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. I mean, the irony. We're being renewed as we die. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is all going somewhere. And Paul says, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, if we die, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, our bodies, we groan, 
longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we, we, or on we may be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in what? Life. Life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would know the world in which you are preparing for us. It's a world that is free from death, free from sin, and we will be fully immersed in life. We will be given new bodies that are unable to treat your image bearers anything less than what we truly are. We bear your image. Help us, Father, to see the value of people, people made in your image from all tongues, all nations. The people that are different than us display you. Help us to celebrate that as a church, Father. Forgive us for all the ways in which we we don't do that. We minimize others. Father, I pray that you would comfort the afflicted right now. Pray that you would send your spirit to comfort us all. The conviction that we're feeling, help us to know that there is grace, that your grace is sufficient. You are so willing and ready to forgive. May we run into your arms, Father. Not sit in our guilt, not in our shame. For there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Father. We are so thankful for that good news. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.